Hi there, I'm Evan Troxell. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome to this episode of the podcast. I'm your host, Evan Troxell. Before I introduce the guest and jump into this episode, I wanted to ask something of you, and that is, if you've listened to the podcast previously and enjoyed any of the episodes, I would love it if you would share one of those with a friend or a colleague. Besides leaving a rating in the Apple Podcast directory or on any other platform that you listen to, it's really the only way that I have to kind of get into the algorithm that's out there for putting podcasts in front of other people. So depending on which directory they're looking in, often there are recommendations. And honestly, the best way for me to show up in there is by you sharing and or rating this podcast. So that's my ask of you today is that you could please either rate and or share this with a colleague or a friend. I would really appreciate that. My guest today is Scott Reynolds, who is the co-founder at Upcodes. Upcodes Upcodes.ai is the website, and Upcodes is basically providing an easily accessible platform via the web for building and construction codes. Regulations and codes right now are found in a range of independent resources, and Upcodes is looking to bring all of those together. I first met Scott in Las Vegas at the AIA convention, where he stopped by our booth where we did a live recording with ArcaSpeak and a few other architectural podcasts that day. I'll put a link to that in the show notes so that you can listen to more. But I've been following the Upcodes story and development and saga over the last few years, and I find it very interesting what they're trying to do and kind of what they've been up against as that's happened. Uh, They've been in a lawsuit with the ICC over basically the access to code information online. So very interesting story. We don't get too much into that. That's probably going to be saved for another episode someday. Obviously, things change at the glacial pace at which the legal system operates in this country. So I think it would make sense to kind of cover that in a later episode once we have more of the full story. Anyway, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy, as I did, this conversation with Scott Reynolds of Upcodes. Scott Reynolds, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to see you again. Thank you for hosting me. You're, uh, you've got a different look. You've got kind of this, uh, you know, you've been in witness protection for a while now, so you're, you're just letting it all go. I, I can, I, now our listeners don't get to see this and I'm not going to share this, this, this image of this video, but, it, and it's great to see you. Um, I, I just not the expect the Scott that I was expecting to see right here. Cause you're, like you said, you're the clean cut uh, type. Yeah. I think we, we've all adapted to quarantine in, in different ways. And, uh, for us, our, our, our team, one of the quirks is everyone started growing quarantine beards. So. That's um, awesome. Whenever we jump on calls with people we haven't connected to in a while, it's always a look of shock. This is a heavily, heavily male-based company that I'm assuming based on that comment. <laughs> it, it's actually, um, I think we actually might be a little over 50% female. Um, so so not everyone's got beard. Not everybody's got the quarantine beard thing going on then. Okay. All right. So uh, tell us a little bit about what you guys are all up to over there at Upcodes. I think, uh, you know, it, as we start to see this, all of these tech companies come out and, and kind of get into the AEC space, like where did that come from for you guys? I know, I know we, we talked on, on a couple of previous shows. We talked on um, when we were in the AIA convention uh, on the other podcast on ArcaSpeak, you stopped by the booth and we had a great conversation. But if you could catch our this group of listeners up on what, you guys are up to with upcodes, and um, I think there's so many other things that we're gonna we're gonna probably end up getting into. But that just as a place to start, I think would be great for people to hear. Yeah, absolutely. So in a nutshell, we we basically focus on technology tools to structure building code research, um, whether that's residential, commercial, um, any kind of project types. Just really trying to bring a little bit of structure and a little bit of automation to the process of looking up, but also applying regulations and, and building codes to to the projects. Um, my background is in architecture, studied architecture, worked abroad for a couple of years, worked in, in the US. Um, and I was always kind of surprised at, at um, how manual and analog some of this building code research could could be. We were literally printing out updates and errata to to the code books and stapling them into to the books. And 
I, I, I turned to my brother, um, who at the time was working at uh, PlanGrid, said, there, there's got to be a better way to to do this. Um, can we bring a technology solution to this? Mm-hmm. Um, kind of uh, ch- uh, trying to dig into his experience as a software engineer and get his get his insights in. Um, really, that's what started up codes. Just very simple. Just let's get these regulations online. Let's integrate local amendments. Let's keep them up to date. Build very simple tools like search, commenting, and some basic workflow um, to to the building code research. And you never imagined what kind of a wild ride that would have become. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. No. Not. Uh, not at all. If, if uh, four years ago, or a little over four years ago, when we started, um, it, to to understand where we are today and what we've gone through in terms of scaling the company, fundraising, getting users, doing sales, going through legal hurdles, um, it, it, I don't think we anticipated any of of, of the journey. And and when you quote unquote, got into architecture. Like, I'm sure you never saw this as as a potential avenue either, right? Like, num- I'm, I'm not even just talking about software development, right? But I'm talking about the whole code side of the business, which it really is. It's kind of like this niche into its unto itself of particular expertise that is on architectural teams, but it's not like what people go to school to become necessarily. Right. Exactly. I, I think in in school we I think I did one class that covered building codes, maybe maybe two classes. Yeah. Um, but really, we we were focused on design. I think a lot of academia, and of course, it depends on what school you go to. But right. um, I went to Syracuse University, and very design focused, very design oriented. You get your first job, or or maybe your first internship, and you really have no idea what how, how to put a building together. What what is the reality of um, of going through that process and and dealing with all the different players in the space and and balancing it all out and what is actually taken I I just frankly felt pretty underprepared by the time I hit the uh, the workforce yeah um, so to your point absolutely did not see myself being as involved in building codes as I was at, at the time I was living in Hong Kong and really being the conduit of information between the design teams in New York City and our local architect or architect of record in mainland China and and really just passing back and forth regulation. So here I was, I thought I got to do a lot of design, but in reality, I'm just uh, sending emails back and forth and helping translate regulations, right. sending it back to the design team in New York. Wow. So, okay, so now like let's let's step into your current role and and where things have gone and and now that you are just like full time, you you've got a I bet you've had like this crazy journey of learning the code, but also like merging that with software development and like you said there's been legal hurdles, there've been sales, there's like all of these things again like that you never set out to do. How has that like what's your world view now? Like it because I think a lot of times people on architectural teams rarely think about the code. Like I think there's a lot of kind of embedded rules in the way that firms do their work to, you know, there's a lot of kind of uh, experience that's built up in in the approach. And a lot of times that's just kind of taken for granted. This is how we do it. This is how we've done it. Um, but But now that you're kind of coming at this from a completely different angle and you're talking to these people on a day-to-day basis... How has that changed kind of how you thought about the architectural design process and like architectural profession? Yeah, well, for, from a very macro perspective, just, you know, what what is the difference jumping from architecture to to a technology company? I'm actually surprised more people don't do that jump. Mm-hmm. I, I think architects are trained very well as what would be considered a product manager and on the tech side, a project manager on the architecture side. Um, but that same skill set is is. Ex- very, very uh, applicable and relevant to to that of, of uh, technology development. You're basically ba- uh, balancing a bunch of folks, the engineers yeah. or software engineers, um, but uh, you have basically being the hub and and spokes out to all these different people and trying to coordinate everybody and pull, make sure everyone's pulling in the same direction while providing that vision and trying to get as close in fidelity to that end vision as, as possible, very much like an architecture project. Yeah. So I think that core function of designing a product is actually very close to to the architecture workflow, which is why I'm surprised more people don't don't make that jump. But all the other functions you mentioned, fundraising, sales, legal, I, I definitely didn't have any preparation for that. Um, and I think that is maybe a function of, of being a founder of a company versus uh, being a particular role where you get to focus, let's say as a product manager. Right. But it's, um, yeah, it, it's been a steep learning curve and learning pretty in depth about these functions that I just really had no idea and kind of trial by fire and uh, jump right into it. 
Yeah, it sounds a lot like like what we're doing with our digital practice at HMC, where we kind of act like a startup within a larger company. And so I, the, a lot of the things that you said, I feel are very similarly about. It's kind of like you're this in this conductor of an orchestra kind of a role, and you're making sure that everybody's playing their part and playing it well, and that it all goes together and kind of setting that overall vision and then the strategy and then the execution of all that, right? I, I feel like that's very similar. And I also kind of draw a parallel to people starting their own firm. And I and I think while that makes up the majority of firms in the nation, um, it's also one of the scariest things you can do, right? And so that's kind of where it, I think one of the potential answers for your question, I don't know why more people don't do that, is because it's scary, right, <laughs> for a lot of people. I mean, and, and I think that... Um, now more than ever, that's it's you know we're everybody's risk averse to some extent. I think that that is pretty pretty seen as a risky thing. I mean, um, I don't know what your experience is with the level of risk you are willing to take on with your company, but it seems like it's pretty high, and not everybody's kind of wired like that. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. I think um, you, you, I think you're right. Like the the risk tolerance you need is extremely high. I think if you're starting your own architecture firm, the the nice thing is. And from what I understand, I've obviously never done it, but you do have some initial clients. So you're going to have some kind of sales or some kind of money in the door to get you started. Yeah. Whereas more often than not, with technology products, you work for a very long time before you make your first sale. Yeah. And for us, I think that was nearly a year. Um, and at the time, as, as a couple of years out of school, I'd done architecture, then then made this this transition and jump you know, didn't have all that much life savings. And I think I, I, I burned through almost the entirety of the life savings. You know, you, you have to pay for rent, you have to pay for equipment, for servers um, for, for around a year and yeah. with no income coming in. And it, it is uh, nerve wracking. And I think you're right, like the the risk is high. If it didn't work out, like fortunately it did, it did work out. Um, I mean, th- I mean, the story is yet to be told to see where it goes, but um, but fortunately we have revenue and it's, it's, it's a sustainable company, everything. But early on, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it's terrifying. You're totally upside down. <laughs> yeah, and so so you weren't doing this kind of on the side as like a side gig or a side hustle from another job. You were all in on this, and you were burning your own literal life savings as you kind of did this to get it going. Exactly. Wow. Um, and and to your point, like um, like diving in and, and learning all these things, like like code. It's a niche, but it's a very very deep niche and very complicated. Um. I, I just saw that to, to really get into it and get as, enough knowledge in the space, I just had to do it full time. It'd be so focused. difficult to. Yeah. Ex- exactly. Wow. And I, I mean, and, and I'm still learning and it, we've, we've been doing it full time for, for over four years. So um, I, I think it's very possible to hedge your bets and, and do some particular companies on the side. This, this one uh, for us, I, I think would have been very challenging, would have been a much, much longer yeah. road. So is it safe to say that the stuff that you guys are taking on is kind of twofold? It's it's like this resource, this kind of online living resource that's searchable. It's, it's like a, a directory of sorts where you can get the information that you're looking for when you need it. But then you guys are also having, you have like this automation arm, right? Where you're doing the, the Revit model check for certain things, right? Accessibility, et cetera. So Tell us a little bit about kind of those two different components, um, or or maybe let's focus on the automation one because one of the thing one of the notes that you sent over was talking about what does it mean for architects in this age of automation. And I've talked to other founders of companies like Clifton Harness over at uh, TestFit, and talked to Ian Keo at Hypar and Andrew Human, and, and like there's various individuals that are kind of tackling not the same problem, but it, it's kind of going about it in a similar way where you're starting to automate and codify expertise into these kind of valuable tools. Um, a lot of people don't agree with that statement. They might think of it as a, as a, it's taking away their job security, right? But, but like in the age of automation, as you, you pose the question, what does it mean for architects? Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's such a relevant uh, topic at the time, especially when you look at self-driving cars um, and that, that has a very short and very clear kind of roadmap to replacing a lot of drivers, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So whether it's um, Uber drivers or, or the trucking industry, it, that is a very kind of, I think, terrifying proposition for a lot of folks. Right. Now, on the other hand, when we think about automation in, in architecture, I actually think the, I, I think it's a much uh, less scary proposition. Um because really, what like what are computers good at? What what are they not good at? Mm-hmm. Um, it, I think it just happens the the way the cookie crumbles here is that 
architects what their core value is is something that computers have a very very hard time replicating and that's understanding aesthetics and and, and balancing rooms and creating spaces mm-hmm. now there are components of that that i think do lend itself to automation but i view that in a, in a way um that's that's more um kind of helping them it's a tool in their in their tool belt to to make their job easier um and then also hopefully like let them spend time on the parts they enjoy, which is which is designing and creating spaces and creating more of those spaces. Yeah. We often talk or, or think about um, accounting software. Now, when accounting software came out, like I, I'm sure that was potentially scary for a lot of accountants. But really, I think like ultimately, it's just a it's a tool that equips them to be more uh, potent at, at their jobs. And we view it the same way. We want to automate pieces of the code that are very um, mundane, maybe boring. And really, just like a, a gut check to to help you through that process. Be basically, I like have a set of eyes over your shoulder, uh, as like a you know, for lack of a better term, like a sidekick to to be with you and work yeah. with you as you go through that process. When we had a conversation, I don't know, maybe a year ago, uh, regarding where kind of upcodes was at the time, one of the huge potentials that I saw in it, and and when I brought it up, you were like, oh yeah, of course. And so I'm not the only one thinking about this, but it to me, the great thing about the tool that you guys have built is that it exposes more people potentially to that part of the architectural process. It makes it more accessible, right? Um, where before, I think a lot of times when you see the code book laying on the table, it's this intimidating, crazy, thick book with different colors of pages because they've been swapped out over time. And and then that your firm kind of has its own interpretations potentially of different things in that code. And that's what you go to the code officials and argue about. And there's kind of this whole black box kind of a, a feeling about it. Whereas like a website where I can type in a search term and I can get back some things. And then what you and I talked about to kind of take that to the next level was it actually starts to kind of make recommendations and, and give you options to make choices rather than leave it completely up to you, which is what happens when you go through a manual code book, like an analog code book, it's like, okay, now what am I going to do with this information? I think your tool now has the opportunity or potentially over time has the opportunity to start saying, well, now that you know this, here are your choices. And then you get to make the choices. And those that information is kind of backed by the data that the code is presenting to you. I think that that is incredibly powerful, and that to me would be incentive alone to get more into this side of the business. Yeah, I, I think um, I mean to go back to the earlier conversation when when I was starting out. It, it one of the big challenges is you know some folks have been there for twenty, thirty years and are experts in certain areas of the code. You might in your firm you might have the the um, healthcare expert who knows the code right. um, uh, through and through, and but it's very difficult to to break into that siloed knowledge or to to acquire that information it literally takes decades and for for especially younger folks it's very i think intimidating and, and challenging to to get up to speed and that that's internal yeah but then also externally is acquiring new work for firms expanding to new jurisdictions expanding to new uh building typologies how do you actually do that if you don't have the in-house expertise to jump into healthcare or jump right. into a, a, an arena right. um or or like high-rise residential so it's it's challenging, I think, on on several different levels, and you also mentioned um, interpretation internal, but also talking to the building departments and how they actually interpret certain codes. Yeah. So that, there's historically been a, a lot of opaqueness um, to the code, and you really, you know, it's a bit of a crapshoot. You really don't know what interpretation you're going to get when you talk to the to the department, and I think that that's such a burden on the industry and, and and a challenge to getting permitting and making permitting more efficient and, and and quicker. So I think the more transparency we can bring to that process, both internally, helping people level up their own abilities and their own talent, equipping them and just, yeah, helping them along that process. But then also externally, when you deal with the building department and understanding how exactly are they going to interpret this code. I think there's just huge amounts of work we can do in that space, exactly like you said. Yeah. And, and this this episode isn't, isn't, like a, a sales pitch for upcodes. But I think one of the things that m- gives me the most excitement when I look at the tool that you guys have built is the way that it becomes kind of a collaborative platform where people on a team can leave notes and bookmarks and they can have comments to other people on their team. Um, and it becomes kind of a repository of sorts that's 
co-authored in some sort of a fashion with the actual code and then the intrinsic knowledge of the people who are using it. At least there's potential there to do better knowledge transference between people and, again, kind of exposing this part of the process to more people and letting them have more ownership over it. Because and that was another thing that we talked about was as soon as you expose this kind of a resource to an entire team of people, and I'm coming at it from our perspective, which is, you know, typically, let's just say five to eight people working on a project at one time. If more of those people can be understanding of and and able to access the code on a moment's notice so that they can do a better project, that only makes what they do more valuable, right? It makes them more valuable. The process is more valuable at the firm. The project is better for it. There's so many kind of like inter, intermingled uh, things about everything being better here. There's so much potential for it to be if, if people really kind of dig into a tool and a resource like this that I think that it makes better architects, right? Because it's not just that encapsulated knowledge in one person who sits in the corner and has been there for 30 years. It's exposing it to a team of people who want to be better architects. Couldn't agree more. And I'll, I'll just add on to that. Um, there's also the real-time collaboration. So, you know, that, you know the, the, the person sitting in the corner who might have the siloed knowledge and trying to tap into that. But then there's also historical knowledge. Mm-hmm. So tapping into to the discussions and the research done in the past, maybe a year or two years ago, especially if you're working on the same building types, more likely than not, you, somebody in your firm probably went through that same research process. So why not just try to solidify that institutionalized knowledge right. and apply that to future projects as well? So yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I think there's a lot of redundancy that we could try to remove. Yeah. So, okay. So one of the things that, that you had on your list was was the overlap between tech, private sector, government sector. So what do you see that's going on with the government's kind of incentive programs to stimulate tech in AEC? Because traditionally, AEC has been very slow to progress and to innovate. I mean, we've all seen the chart. It's like negative, <laughs> right, of productivity index. Uh, and the innovation curve is extremely flat for AEC. So are you seeing stimulation kind of ideas coming up and, and things like that? Or where's that? Where, explain more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think actually the opposite. I think we've seen a, a lack of stimulation, unfortunately. Yeah. Um and, and really like this this whole kind of um idea or or topic came up from from seeing and, and working with some of these governments. And it's it's kind of incredible how fragmented the the um government solutions tend to be and, and where all this budget is going into these different small little parcels for individual point solutions for different governments. And what I mean by that is when you go to a government site, it's going to look very, very different from the next county or the next city that you go to. And also the permitting and and permit tracking and online submission, if they have it, or online portals. Um, Sometimes it's it's custom built. So in in the case of New York City, they've spent tens of millions of dollars building it. And it's fantastic. Like, like, don't get me wrong, like like a great initiative, well executed. Um, But why... is tens of thousands of taxpayers' dollars going to a single portal that only one jurisdiction is going to get? Now, granted, I know that tax money is probably coming from from that jurisdiction, but it just seems um, like a waste. Why don't why aren't we taking these 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 solutions and 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 applying it to the whole uh, country? Yeah. And no um, kind of strong or fully baked idea here, but I, I think there's an interesting intersection between the private sector and and the and the public sector where we can create these solutions. Uh, that are semi-private, uh, semi, semi-public, but can be at least distributed across the whole country. And um, you, you get benefits of scale. So yeah. you can spend the same amount of money, but you can give it to 200 different cities instead of just just one city. Are you seeing that happen at all from a grassroots level, like from the other way around, where any firms that are banding together because they have kind of this national presence to band together with other firms and do something similar? That's a, that's a great question. I, I haven't seen on, on a firm-wide level, uh, maybe even a bit more grassroots than that. There, there's some really interesting forums online, like the, the Building Code Forum, I believe it's called. Um, and people will post like, hey, how do you think this is going to be interpreted? What What's your take on it? And I think it's particularly helpful if someone from the same area has been there. So you can see a little bit of knowledge yeah. starting to bubble up on the internet where you can uh, you know tap into that knowledge. But I think it's 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 far too little to to really make a dent into how, how um, uh, fragmented this is. 
Yeah, I think those fragments, man, those are the the probably the worst part of our profession because because everybody's kind of operating independently and reinventing the wheel because everybody's doing the same stuff and they're they've got their kind of like we were talked about siloed knowledge and they've got their you know their spec writer and they know all this stuff and they've got their senior PA who knows all this stuff but there's all these senior PAs in different studios or different offices or different firms that aren't working together um, and it seems to me like that fragmentation just gets bigger and bigger the further away from those those centroids you go right when you start talking about portals to submit plans and the way that code check happens and then the way that permitting happens and and i honestly feel like for our profession or let's just call it the aec industry to move forward that stuff needs to be addressed in the biggest ways possible not the all of these independent independent little pieces um, that to me is the thing that's probably missing the most, and 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 it's because firms like com- competition is bred into us during school, right? So, it's it's one of and everybody who's who's worked in the industry for a while. I mean, for the most part, we're very highly competitive individuals, uh, anyway. So, um, how do we get out of that? Because like you're you guys are tackling a problem, and you are trying to apply that solution kind of equally. Right, upcodes is accessible to whoever wants to go on that website and get that information. Right, um, that to me is the kind of thing that should be like a resource to everybody in the profession and not be owned by one little company. And and that kind of thinking, I hope, is what shows like this or thinking like this or tools like what you're doing can really start to break us out of the boundaries of we're going to do our thing right here because it's totally custom and no one else does exactly what we do. That's not true, right? Like there's so much overlap that it really does seem like we should band together a lot more and create tools that benefit our entire profession because that's not stuff that we should be spending our time doing. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And it, it reminds me of the saying, standing on shoulders of, of giants. Um, in the software world, there's um, very, very robust communities online where people contribute open source code. And you, you can go out and get this code and adapt it to yourself so you don't have to reinvent the wheel each time. And exactly to your point, I think in our architecture, we, we kind of get back into this rhythm of every single um, decision or, or design element we're, we're building from the ground up. But wouldn't yeah. it be incredible if we could just say, hey, look, there's, this really isn't going to make that much difference overall in the design. I'm going to use you know the best case scenario that sounds open source or that put online. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plug that in just like we do in, we do in software. Um, and I'm really not sure why we, we have, well, maybe it's your point, maybe it's competitiveness, but um, but we, we certainly aren't there in terms of the sharing and trying to create these these modules that we can share among offices, share among professionals and start to to plug into our projects. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you, you, you hit on, on some, another kind of mini topic in there, which was like starting from the ground up. Right, starting from a blank page is something that we talked about with Ian Keo of Hypar, and that's kind of their, one of their their main tenets of of Hypar is like stop starting from a blank page. We need to codify more of this knowledge into these functions, these kind of elemental building blocks that everybody can use, so that we can stop redundantly creating the same thing project after project. I mean, now now you are in the software business, and so you are. You've moved from project to product, and that product gets used by lots and lots of people. Like, can you explain kind of that scalability that you've you've experienced, and how it, does it take a different mindset to approach things like that? Or you know, what what has that been like for you to change gears in that way from like one off projects to scalable products that lots and lots and lots of people can use? Um, so, so I think it, it was a very different change of mentality so instead of building for one client or or maybe like a coalition of of clients and now you're building for um depending on your scale but maybe thousands in in our case uh, we have over four hundred thousand monthly active users so when you ship a new feature you have to think through okay there's four hundred thousand people are going to see this feature every single or every single month um and those those folks vary widely in in their background so Maybe their their job, maybe their architects, engineers, GCs, homeowners, um, age variation. Uh, they're they're they might be on a phone, they might be on a tablet, on a computer. So thinking through the scalability and every single different form factor, people might be accessing the content. Um, it, it's just 
it just and almost an unlimited amount of possibilities and combinations. So it could be pretty jarring at times, like trying to wrap your head around that amount of, of uh, different use cases that it's going to be applied to. But on the other hand, software is very light. It's very easy to iterate on. And it's better to sh- get something out there, get reactions, and then iterate on it. Yeah. Um, you, you're getting analytics. You see how people are interacting with it. You can you can talk to them. And you're trying to get a big sample set so you, you, you understand that it's working for everybody. But um, it, you're absolutely right. Like it, it is a huge, I think, shift in mentality um, to, to solve for multiple edge cases at the same time. So how important is that feedback to you guys versus kind of your maybe initial vision versus what actually ends up being like, is it close to what you initially visualized? Uh, or is it is it like, you got feedback that took you in a direction that you never saw coming? Yeah, great. Yeah, great, great question. I, I think a, a mix of the two. So there's certainly been things where we had initial vision and you know, we, we, we shipped a, a minimum viable product or an MVP. So very, basically a very lightweight version of, of that end goal. And then you get your initial reaction, you respond to it, you, maybe you, you, you modify it, you iterate, you ship it again and get your feedback. Uh, like in, in a good uh, scenario, maybe you're 80% correct from your initial vision where it ends up. So sometimes you're you're 100% wrong. Like, yeah, like yeah. maybe the feature just didn't work at all. You, you have to roll it back. And, and we do that. Um, you know, we have an idea, we have a theory, we validate it with some folks, get it out there, put it in front of people, and it could fall on its face completely. And mm-hmm. I think you just have to be willing to understand when something's not working and, and, and pull it back, but not invest so much that you, you're hesitant to pull that back. So just a lot of experimentation and just being open to it. One of, one of the sayings that I heard a long time ago was if, if you shipped version one and you weren't embarrassed by it, you waited too long, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I think of that like going through the design process on a building. It's, it's kind of similar. Like you need to get feedback fast so that you know whether it's worth pursuing those ideas or not. Because if, if you don't, and the more kind of... Uh, the more you put into that and the, and the more, the higher the chances are, you're going to have to back out of it. That's just a lot of wasted effort. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. I, I think architects by nature are actually pretty good at that. I, I think, you know, when we design multiple options and we show the client, okay, here's scenario or option A, B, and C, and you can walk them through it. What are the pros and cons of each one? And I, I actually think that's pretty built into, to a lot of architects workflow. Yeah. Um, but it is, certainly not built into a software engineer's workflow. So that's where we actually get this very interesting clash where these software engineers uh, much prefer the kind of measure twice, cut once. So they, they want a very fleshed out spec and uh, kind of very clear instructions. Whereas I think from us coming from a design perspective, we like to f- try out a bunch of different things, see how it works and delete the ones that, that don't work. So th- so we, we've certainly had over time like a um, uh, this, this interesting kind of tension or friction and I think both sides have, have merit. So we've kind of found a happy middle point to that. I, I'm kind of thinking now about like what you're talking about designing software, right? And, and as a design problem, um, much like designing a building is a, is a design problem and aesthetics are part of that. And thinking about kind of the UI UX of software, like what's that like for you coming from an architectural background? Yeah, so, so it, and it kind of weaves in a lot of the topics we've we've talked about, um, where like reinventing the wheel each time. So I think that's a very big thing. Where you know I, I was my kind of experience working as an architect, we we did try and reinvent the wheel quite a bit. So mm-hmm. in our first couple iterations, you know, for this a sign in button, a login button, a reset password, uh, basic navigational elements, we are we are kind of thinking from uh, first principles. And I'm not knocking on not like thinking of first principles. You you certainly certainly should, um, but we are reinventing everything, mm-hmm. and we quickly realized that that actually comes with a massive cost, which is to the user. Now they have to learn conventions. They have to relearn these things that you've you've um, uh, reconfigured, and there is expectations to the convention. Like people know to look at the top right to to log in or mm-hmm. to sign up, and navigation elements usually align on the the, the, um, the top bar or maybe a left hand bar. Right. Um, so there's a lot of these conventions, and and we have to be very strategic when we depart from those conventions, or um, when we just take them. And from a general uh, perspective, 
if, if it's not going to make a very substantial difference in the product or it's 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 not critical for that particular feature, we'll try and just use the conventions. So to make it easy as easiest as possible for for the end user. Do you okay? So we're, we're kind of going back to to some of the earlier statements you made regarding kind of the user base of a of a tool like this. I would assume it's going to be people who have been in the industry for a long time. I mean, your goal is to get them using a tool like yours um, instead of the, the the printed out book that sits on the desk. Um, and and I'm just wondering, like from a UI UX perspective versus a millennial of who's going to use your tool and maybe what they expect as far as convention, is there a difference there? Like how how difficult is it for you to, to design for, I don't know what, four generations <laughs> of users? Like you've got a lot of different right. user types out there. So what's that like from a design problem perspective as you're implementing a tool that is, you know, quote unquote, supposed to work for everybody? Yeah, very, very challenging. Um, and, and it goes down from the, the functionality of it and navigation. So we call UX or user experience. And then down to the aesthetics. What does this thing actually look like? And what we call UI yeah. or user interface. So the UX UI, um, it, it, to, to your point, expectations across the different generations is, is very, very different. And the level of comfort with different um, UX patterns is, is very, very different. And especially for some of the older generations, they've spent a lot of time in Autodesk software mm-hmm. for for better or worse. And Autodesk, you know, has done great things, but they've also introduced some uh, less than ideal navigation patterns and um, elements into software like AutoCAD and, and Revit. But as an industry, that's that's been baked into into our yeah. kind of muscle memory, right. and it's. It's it's very hard um, for us to to kind of depart from some of those wow. expected uh, UI elements. Now, if you're a younger generation, maybe you're experiencing or, or diving into to other softwares, and you're just spending more time on your phone, perhaps just speculating more, aware of some of these like kind of more progressive uh, and maybe even aggressive UI. Um, cutting edge designs from i don't know who might be like like what, facebook or what older whoever. people like me might say is like really unintuitive stuff right like snapchat and like 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 totally hidden stuff that you it's really hard to kind of find on your own yeah 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 absolutely and and not to say that um this this kind of new stuff with snapchat is better or worse and sometimes it's sometimes it's worse yeah um it's just different to give a very concrete example um kind of like with very modern design using um, the grayscale, we, we had fonts that were very light, you know, against like a gray background or something. And the, the difference in contrast between the two is quite low. Um, so, you know, if, if you have very good eyesight, you can read it fine. Now, if you don't have great eyesight, it's very difficult to, to read. And we got that feedback immediately. And, and that was kind of the, I think that was probably the first time we're like, okay, wait a second, we're designed for a lot of people here. Yeah. We can't necessarily just go for like, what's the flashiest design, um, uh, trend out there we, we have to keep in mind everybody so how much time do you guys spend looking at other examples of interfaces and trying things out i imagine it's a lot a lot yeah yeah quite quite a bit um and j- just like in in architecture design iterating constantly internally and just creating mock-ups and putting them in front of people because you know sometimes it's nice to get out of your own head so to, so to speak and right. just get in front of people get the reaction oftentimes it's extremely surprising you might have thought it was intuitive or, or not intuitive and you know, someone out, outside your company might just be like, hey, no, this doesn't make any sense at all. And, and you put yourself in their shoes. It's like, oh, you're absolutely right. That that doesn't work. Um, so, yeah, there's a, a, a huge amount of time studying other sites and then seeing if it would work for our own and then putting it in front of users and see if it makes sense. So with with the kind of tool that you guys are developing, totally focused around building codes and things like that, like obviously you're going to have certain types of users that, that are using that. They're... they're you know, they're, they're the people in the firm who spend a lot of time doing that and maybe not a lot of time doing other stuff. Um, not designing buildings necessarily or not doing details like, like they're embedded in the code. Right. Um, and then you also talked about kind of this legacy UI that Autodesk has such a grip on in, inside of the profession, right? Everybody's used it. Everybody's using it. Um, and so there's like, there's, there's tons of kind of embedded knowledge in the way, you know, quote unquote, things should work or do work for a lot of people. Um, and then you also kind of pair that up with 
the slow speed at which people adopt new tools within our industry, right? So how does all that kind of come back to the tool that you're developing? Like, do you, do you guys take all that into consideration? Are you trying to kind of bridge the gap between those different things? Or are you trying to go in a new direction or you know, like work, walk, walk me through that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so we very much try to break it down into digestible pieces. I, I think if you're too ambitious and you have your North star and it's like, okay, that's where I think that the workflow should be. And that's where the industry will be in 10, 20 years. If you try to build that today, you, you Almost no one is going to adopt it. Even the early adopters, it's going to be too too early for it. It's going to be too foreign. It's going to be too hard to learn, too hard to integrate into existing workflows. Um, so both from a business perspective, but also just from a user um, adoption perspective, we try to break that up into easier pieces to to get them more accustomed and and to to have more overlaps with their existing workflows. And to be to be frank, like it, it does have the advantage of helping users adopt it. But also as advantage of validating, is was that even a good idea? Because there's a huge amount of risk in trying to predict the future and building that before you get the validation. So breaking into those small incremental steps, uh, I think, is easier for the user. But then we it benefits us, too, because then we know if we're going the right or, or the wrong direction. Yeah. So when Autodesk makes like a big shift in their UI, like, you know, there's been talk for years and years about some new, you know, whatever they're going to call it, Genesis Plasma, et cetera, et cetera. They keep changing the name. I mean, when they went from, what was it, Revit 2009 to 2010, and they introduced the ribbon toolbar, that was like jarring for so many people. Um, that's all, that's going to happen again, right? Now that Revit's 22 years old, I mean, there's going to be a huge shift, I'm assuming, because the frameworks of 2010 are not modern software development frameworks anymore, right? And they're not necessarily what people expect. You see... You see so much new interface design happening out there, whether it's, on, you know, there's there's new tools to do it like Figma. There's there's so much happening on the web. There's so many more interfaces that people interact with, whether it's mobile or on their TV or like that, that they're used to. So so it's a completely kind of different landscape now than what it was. Like your progression of upcodes, has it has it always been really incremental and and small changes over time? And do you see it as being flexible enough to make continue to just make changes like as as you guys see fit over over time, or do you or do you kind of see like a major redesign having to happen at some point um, that could you know shake things up for you guys and your users potentially? So so it's interesting. So um, and I'm sure you saw this in the news, but Autodesk took a lot of heat from I think a um, a coalition or a band of UK architecture firms yeah. saying, "Hey, look, we're paying a lot for Revit. You guys have barely updated it. You you haven't put resources there um, nearly as much as you should for for the cost of it." Um, and I, and I think it comes down to d- just how much of legacy code is in that software. Yeah. So it came came from an acquisition, right? And and we've we've dabbled in in it uh with especially with upcodes ai and and you know saw a little bit into that into that code base and especially the api and it is old and it is hard it, it is a massive massive piece I can't of, imagine. Yeah. of software so yeah. i for them um this kind of overhaul i think is is going to be uh inevitable or it needs to be if it's not them it's going to be somebody else yeah um it, at least a massive component if not all should be in the cloud just like figma like you had Photoshop, well, I guess Illustrator is, is the better analogy, but you you had Illustrator and then you had Sketch app and then Figma came and put that in the cloud, made a lightweight version. And I think exactly the same thing needs to happen to Revit. Um, now, how does that apply to us? The second part of your, your question, you know, it, it's funny, you mentioned the the ribbon um, being groundbreaking or being kind of crazy. And I, I think for us, like our first step is let's just get the codes into a structured database and put them online uh-huh. and make them searchable. Uh-huh. Now, that at the time was like a big improvement over the existing solutions. But if you think about it, that's that's so simple. It's just that you just put these things online and, and, and make it searchable. Like it's very straightforward, but I, I think it's deceivingly simple, like what might look like an incremental step. But I think they're actually, you know, in, in aggregate, they're actually pretty potent or pretty mm-hmm. powerful. Mm-hmm. And I, I think in terms of our long-term roadmap, there I mean, there could be like this this overhaul but we're very conscious not to get in the trap of Autodesk. And what those the the British architecture firms noted was, or or maybe it was it was someone uh, writing a, an article on on their their letter. But somebody said, 
you know, when software companies mature, they, they start iterating and they start changing less. So it's very, very incremental changes. Yeah. When you're young, you can move quickly, yeah. you can make yeah. big changes. Right. But I don't think that necessarily needs to be the case. Um, so we're very conscious of that. And as we start to, the product matures and the company matures, I want to stay as nimble as possible and, and, and be able to move and iterate as fast as we could in, early on. So, and, and Figma is a great example. Like I think they've done a great job and they're, they're shipping, cadence, shipping new features. Um, cadence has been really high and they've, they've done a, a great job with that. So um, yeah, so, so hopefully there's no major hull um, required We'll do it if we need to, yeah. but hopefully we we kind of design and plan ahead of that to to avoid it. Yeah, I, I I wonder if you guys actually now that you say that have kind of like a set of guiding principles for the development that you do because it seems to me like one of those is be fast, be nimble. Like, is there? Do you guys have other kind of guiding principles that you constantly look back upon as you develop software? Yeah, for for sure, and and um. I definitely can't take credit for this, or no one on the team can take credit because it's it's pretty um, pretty common. But but just monitoring what's called tech debt, and I, I'm sure you're you're familiar. But just for the audience, so tech debt is basically when you write software, there's going to be a component of that software that um, you'll likely need to upgrade in the future, and you know it, and and you and you take on a little bit of debt because you say, okay, I can move fast, but knowing I'm going to ha- come back and have to write a little bit of this code. And, it, and, it, and it's a trade-off, and it, sometimes it makes sense to take some tech debt. Sometimes it makes sense to pay down some of that tech debt. So spending some time to go back and clean up old code. The problem is you can move very, very fast, take on a lot of tech debt, but at some point it's going to catch up to you and you have this huge piece of the code base that you need to go back and, and fix. So to your question, like wh- what's one of those principles? It's it's keeping that tech debt low. Like You can only stay nimble if you have very, very little tech debt. So it's something we... Um, just keep an eye on and, and constantly monitor. Um, I, I think has worked well. And, and and if we continue to keep this tech debt low, we'll hopefully be able to iterate on the features and, and ship at a, at a high cadence uh, like we've done in, in the past. So how do you do that? Like, how do you guys actually do that? Is it is it through kind of like a, a agile development workflow or is it through like, I, I like what are some actual ways that you keep a low tech debt? Yeah, yeah, and and it's it's uh, pretty straightforward and simple. It, it's it's um a certain amount of time building new features, and then a ratio, and then a certain amount of time ping back tech debt, and 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 it's always tempting to build new stuff because it's 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 fun creating new, shiny new, new tools stuff. and new yeah, features. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But if you have it in the calendar, and let's say you're doing um like four weeks of new development, then you have to spend a week or two weeks paying back tech debt, and and that's and it's a really high ratio. Like you're you're spending a lot of time fixing bugs, um, uh, paying back some, some of that tech debt. But if you don't have it in the calendar, somebody's going to argue for a new feature and, and some, and somebody's going to push that out in, into the future. So you just have to have a really, really, um, committed time frame when you, when you're reserving time to actually do that and know it's, it's, it becomes, um, uh, very protected time. No one can touch. I bet it helps you sleep better at night too, right? Like, like that's just got to take such a burden off your shoulders. Like, cause you don't have that lingering, black cloud of tech debt <laughs> kind of right. hey remember i remember i'm here it's tapping you on the shoulder i'm i'm still here like that's not probably really nice to make that go away it is and it, it actually has another benefit as well because I'm, I'm on the product side so we're we're talking to users and figuring out what to build and for our side of the company we're always, we have to stay ahead of the software engineers because they're they're constantly you know a couple weeks behind their work and they're, they're building out what we we spec out so you're, you're constantly being you know, going to go like chased by the software engineers behind you that are constantly almost catching up to you. Yeah. So if if they have two weeks in which they're just working on um, tech debt items, it, it just gives you a little bit of a breather so so that you can spend a little bit more time talking to folks, talking to users and just doing some research and not mission critical, uh, figuring out the specs to, to be built. So where are you guys going from where you are now? Like what 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 are you excited about? I guess is probably a better question because I I'm not asking you to like release any important information about the roadmap of of upcodes, but like what are you excited about in the future of upcodes that's that's going to be something that we can look forward to as well? Yeah, so I, I think from a very macro perspective, we we just spent literally years gathering up all this data, building infrastructure to keep it up to date to make it searchable, but really that that's just like table stakes. Like we're we're just getting that 
information into one place and making it accessible to everybody. Yeah. But I, I think now going forward, now that we have all that stuff in place, is, is going to be the really exciting time when we can start to create some of this automation and create the, the new workflows to kind of, instead of relying on you to, to ask what um, uh, codes are, are required and for you to do the research, for us to start pushing that to you before you even need it. So if you're working on a, say, a hospital in, um, in Southern California, or let's say like LA, um, we can start to intelligently give information based on the phase or based on the time to you before you come to us to ask what is, is required. So that would be awesome. Um, wow. I know it's, it's, it's very vague, but, but um, I, I feel like we're finally at that inflection point where we can start to create some of this really exciting stuff. Do you guys have um, like a, a series of or a set of strategic advisors as far as like uh, people who have been in the code side of things for a really long time? I would imagine that you do. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So um, we, ha- we have a former code consultant and someone who worked in the government on staff full time um, who then goes out to a network of consultants and ad- advisors um, and will we'll contract with different companies. And it- it's it's. Um, yeah, it's it's and to your point, it's so complicated. It is a niche, but it's extremely complicated. There's a lot of different areas. Yeah. It's hard to be an expert in every single area. Yeah. So, like like a fire protection engineer or, or accessibility expert, um, it's difficult to have all of those people in house. So we end up contracting and and uh, getting uh, advice from experts really around the country. I I wonder if if Upcodes could be kind of the preferred platform to capture. Like like one of the one of the things that, that we identify in our firm, and I'm sure it's no different anywhere else, is that like when when these people who are experts in this walk out of the door at retirement or win the lottery, like that information that is it's gone. <laughs> it walks out the door with them. There's not a lot of effort being placed on capturing that knowledge. And like you said, it is kind of so niche and depending upon the the market segments that they work within can be very different from one another, like healthcare and multifamily housing can be very different from each other. Um, and you wouldn't necessarily have the same kind of expert in, in both of those fields at the same time. They're probably, it's so expert that they're probably in one. I, it would be amazing to have a platform that also serves as a, as a place to capture that real human kind of knowledge set that is not what the code is as presented, but it is all of the other stuff. I, that would be just a fan. I, I'm just, just throwing that idea out there. Maybe you've, you've already thought of that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that goes to the, both the private side and the, the public side. You mentioned like the, like a building inspector and um, you know, you might have a residential building inspector who's extremely experienced in certain areas. Um, and, and because it's so complex, they tend to specialize, but same thing on on the private side, like people specializing in, in healthcare or, right. or residential. And I think, um, yeah, I, I think if we can create a system of record that you can tap into this, it's like, hey, I have this question. I, I know probably 500 people have had this question, whether in my company or outside the company, and they've gone into some kind of answer. I, so I want to tap into that. I want to yeah, know absolutely. what they got to. Yep. And definitely don't have the answer, but I, I think it is absolutely something we need to work on is to capture that knowledge and, and, and be able to tap into it in the future. Yeah, I mean, if you if you think about a company like Amazon, right? Like Amazon's this platform that has all these products that you can find, but people really go to Amazon to read the reviews. <laughs> like that's why people trust Amazon is because they've just built a system that can capture all of these people's experiences who have bought the product. And obviously there's downsides to that too. That you can game that system. There's there's tons of crap, but but like that is a true value that's offered, and I could totally see that being the case with something like Upcodes. Yeah, and and I absolutely know what you mean because I was I was looking for something and I was like, you know what, I could go down the street to Best Buy, but I, I like I won't have reviews at my fingertip, and I, I'd rather wait for the couple of days in the in the mail for this well, to come. So many, I, I know how many times have you gone to a Best Buy or a tar- or whatever, you know, an REI, it doesn't matter, and and you're like looking at something and and you pull it up right there on your phone because the information's available because and you want to read somebody else's thoughts on this thing. Like those aren't on the package. The the package is a shiny polished thing with a great font and great colors and design and and but but you don't know like how it works or how somebody like like how long it's going to last or you know, there's all of kind of these intangibles that come through experience and I could totally just see 
a tool like yours being a fantastic place for that knowledge to get captured. And again, it's not gospel, but it's experience. It's not the way it's going to get interpreted in your jurisdiction, but it's still valuable information that could help you make a decision in the meantime. I could just see that being extremely valuable, really cool. Yeah, well, to your point, like you can imagine someone um, going on site and and saying like, hey, you know, like looking at a uh, some some kind of uh, assembly or something and just taking a picture of it. And then right on the phone, you get all the information. Like here, yeah. here's everything you need to know. Here's the spec. Here's the manufacturers. Here's previous installations. Here's previous building inspecting reports that passed or didn't pass. Yeah. B- basically like reviews. Yeah. Here's things to look out for. Here's the five things you need to know about this. Like I could totally see that being a, uh, an amazing resource. Anyway, I want to, I want to, be like very aware of your time. So I have a couple questions to ask you here to kind of start to wrap things up. And and I this is by no means needs to go fast or slow. Like I, I want to, I, I would love to hear your take on these. So um, I ask everybody, what is something that you do, Scott Reynolds, to kind of hack yourself? Uh, like you're the CEO, you're the co-founder of this company. Like what, what do you do to keep your performance at a super high level to keep your energy, like however you kind of want to interpret that. I would love to hear something that you do that helps you. Um, I, I think one thing that uh, both myself and my co-founder have done since day one is left Sundays as um, uh, kind of untouchable days where you cannot work. So we often work on Saturdays and it's tempting to work on Sundays, but I, I think that's the one thing more than any other that that has prevented burnout um, and kept us fresh, because I I think like you, you you could just grind out more hours and you'll get a little bit done in, incrementally, but you lead into the next week and and, and you're tired and I, I think just just setting aside some amount of time where you can take a mental break and check out and for me personally that that's riding my bike so whether it's mountain biking or road biking, um, just getting exercise and and quite frankly just great to get out of the city in, into the into the woods and i i think it's a complete reset for me uh both the you know just having that day off but also like getting out of the city getting exercise so i i think that more than anything else is has um uh contributed to to be able to kind of push so hard for so many years that's that's good i i have a similar kind of take on that as as well like clear boundaries between what when work is allowed or not allowed to happen and same thing for me i get on the bike i, I go get out, get out of the, this kind of thing that I'm looking at all the time, right. To get a different, different perspective. And so, yeah, we'll have to go for a ride sometime. That'd be fun. <laughs> yeah. I'll have to check out the Los Angeles. Uh, the, the trails are not as good as they are up where you are. So I'll just put that out there. It's better where you are. At least you, you have a lot more trees to look at than we do. All right. So next question is who influences you? Who do you read? Who do you listen to? you have any recommendations that you could give? Yeah, I, I think, um, and, and this is someone I, I've only stumbled upon quite recently in the in the last couple of weeks. But Naval Ravikant, oh, yeah. um, so he was one of the co-founders of um, AngelList. Right. But just uh, such a kind of a first principles thinker, and um, I mean, you, if you listen to a lot of kind of um, business podcasts or, or or tech podcasts, like you hear a lot of the same concepts being thrown out a lot, and and I think Naval more than anyone else I've, I've ever listened to has the most fresh concepts and ideas. Um, and, and, and really, I, you, know, you might not agree with all of them, but they're, they're very interesting and, and kind of uh, stimulating. So it, it does tend towards the technology side a little bit. So I, I'll give everyone that warning. But, um, but I think there's a lot of nuggets in there. And he's really, really interesting. Yeah, I've heard him actually on a few other podcasts. And then he does have his own. Uh, and I, I really enjoy listening to him. He he does tend to speak in sound bites because I think he repeats these things quite often because they're so like core to his belief system that 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 would maybe be my one criticism if you listen to a lot of his stuff, but um, especially the first time. I mean, when it's all new to you, it's fantastic. So I'll put links to his Twitter and his podcast in here, the the Naval podcast, and I think it's just at Naval on Twitter. But he's a he's a great follow, um, and and I agree. Like he's kind of a tech philosopher <laughs> on some level a lot of his stuff is very philosophical um and and it is it's really interesting stuff so that's that's a great recommendation thanks for making that uh last question is where can people follow along with what you guys are doing what's your website uh links anything that you would like to plug right now would be the time 
Yeah. Um, so so we try to post all news on Twitter. Um, so we're at, at upcodes on Twitter or the website up.codes, or you could just type upcodes into Google. Um, I'd say the Twitter is, or Twitter is probably the best for any updates. Uh, the website, uh, obviously, that's where you can find all the features and see it in action. Right. Um, yeah, those are the two, the two places. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I had a lot of fun, and I think you know there's probably stuff that we could continue to talk about. So maybe we can do this again sometime. But thank you. It was a great, great conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for taking the time. I really, really enjoyed it. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.